Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, May 21, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series. In this talk, two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer David Levering Lewis speaks with historian David Nassau about the career of the 1940 Republican presidential candidate, Wendell Wilkins. Um, I'm delighted to be here. David is a gentle, wonderful man and very scary for all of us historians because he's too prodigious a researcher. He writes too well. And unlike most of us, he moves back and forth over oceans, across continents, through time spans. He's written about the 8th century, right? Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And he's written about the 20th century, nothing into the 21st century yet, but he'll get there. Um, I want to begin just with with a general question. You began with, your first book was a biography of Martin Luther King. Was it your second book, which was Dreyfus? Uh, yes, yes, it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then your third book was Harlem. And Harlem was in Vogue. I Harlem think. was in Vogue. Okay, so we've also gone across the ocean and back. Um, and then there are, there was a Fashoda book. There was. Back across the ocean. Then two, the extraordinary Du Bois biographies, then back to your book on Islam in Europe, um, and Wendell Wilkie. How do you come up with these? <laughs> I want to know this. How do you come up with these with these topics? What is it that sets you off on a new path that ends in an extraordinary book? You know, I'm not sure I have uh, really uh, a convincing answer. Uh, it, it, it has worked, and I think that is perhaps why I've continued to do it. And not everything has worked, but there have been more successes than, than, than not, uh, probably because I actually uh, did uh, European history uh, abroad uh, with a uh, uh, final degree in it, and I returned to my own country in the middle of what was the Civil Rights Revolution, and um, it, it seemed that I could be uh, most useful uh, if I took an interest uh, in that topic as it was cohering. Uh, and uh, I, uh, uh, um, I, I did. It was really quite adventitious. I'd known uh, the editor of uh, Penguin, uh, who had come to the United States <coughs> uh, for a time, and he said, you know, we have a new series. It's called Great Leaders of the 20th Century. And why don't you write about Martin Luther King? And Martin Luther King was a very young man at that time. And uh, I said, uh, no, I, I've been abroad. I haven't kept up with things. 
Uh, and so I was sending the letter of declination when, unfortunately, uh, Martin King was assassinated. And I said, well, to myself, it now does have an end, and I, I can write it. And, and I did in a remarkably short period of time. Uh, one year it came out after, after his demise. And that introduced me to African-American history at just the point where it was reaching an apogee, and I very much wanted to go for, uh, along for the ride. And I did, uh, but then I remembered something about Europe, and I found myself relapsing. And so that explains why I have been hardly respectable, uh, but uh, prolific. How did, you, how did you get to God's crucible? Yes, that came from Dreyfus. Uh, it, it, it came from uh, knowing uh, about um, a sort of sub-theme at the time, uh, a mission across Africa, and I heard that the documents for that mission across Africa called the Marchand Mission had been burnt in the courtyard of the, uh, of the um, um, affairs, the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, as the Germans were thinking they were going to a- approach. And I thought, it's fascinating. I wonder what we can learn about it. And I learned that that mission's documents had not been thrown out and burnt, and uh, I found them uh, in a French archive and wrote about Fashoda. To do that, I spent time in the Sudan and in Ethiopia and in uh, uh, parts of Africa. And when I left, uh, the government was overthrown, and the government was a secular government, with a constitution that uh, uh, made uh, religion simply a factor uh, in the political life of the country. But Sharia was declared, and I thought, what a difference that's going to make to this very cosmopolitan, believe it or not, um, town of uh, Khartoum uh, and of Omdurman, those two towns. And then came the embassy explosions. And I had written about, of course, um, the... Uh, issue of the uh, Sharia stopping the uh, British Empire in the 1880s and 90s. And it was a stunning uh, stop for the uh, Brits. And I thought, we're going to perhaps have the same sort of thing happen to us with the Sharia and Islam in, uh, in East Africa. Uh, and they're going to be speed bumps. And so I thought... That's going to sort of feed into the Huntington thesis uh, of, uh, of the clashing civilizations. And I think that's nonsense, and so I'd like to write something uh, about a time when the clash would not have been possible. And I convinced uh, my publisher to do so and went off to begin writing about just a discrete thing, something like uh, 70 years of, of history in the 8th century, and uh, the morning I arrived, uh, 9-11 occurred, and uh, my editor at Norton said, don't come home. Uh, <laughs> there's real, a real story there. Keep going. And so I did. And God's Crucible, I'm, I'm looking here at the 1570 to 1215. 570. 570, uh-huh. excuse yes, me. Sir. 570 to 1215. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't want to... Why 1215? 
Well, that was the moment when uh, the Reconquista became um, uh, certified by the, uh, the, the papacy, the Vatican. There was a, an ecumenical council, and uh, the kind of uh, uh, us versus them was poured in stone by that pope. And so I thought that's a good point to stop, mm-hmm. even though, of course, we know there are going to be another uh, 300 years before the Muslims are exited. And, uh, and, and, and in fact, they never did leave. Uh, but there will also be the expulsion of Jews uh, as well. And so I thought that was a, a terminus. Uh, and uh, that, that, that was why I stopped. Okay. And on to when the war... 570 was- may have been the date that, uh, that Muhammad was born. We don't know. The an extraordinarily ambitious. Listen to this first sentence um, in the preface. I mean, and you and you think when you read this first sentence, is he really going to do this? We all know a little bit about Wendell Wilkie, but David begins. Wendell Lewis Wilkie was one of the most exciting. So your ears prick up. Intellectually able and authentically transformative figures to stride the 20th century American political landscape. In an era of well-merited disgrace, Wilkie served up the American business community's most reasoned, politically effective, and politically nimble defense against government regulation of the free market economy. When the Wilkie baited and debated Franklin Roosevelt, whose imperious sense of self-indispensability was turning his office into an imperial presidency, Wilkie warned with crackle, cracker barrel farsightedness. Um, the prose sparkles. Um, where had you thought about Wilkie... Was this a project you thought about earlier and then put away, or did it suddenly come to you? Um, I, I knew we were going to have a great uh, pas de deux. <laughs> <laughs> we, we tried to do this uh, uh, early on, and uh, for various reasons it didn't happen. Right. And I'm so pleased that you have had the time to, uh, to appreciate the book and uh, to, uh, to, to be here. Um, I... Uh, um, didn't want to write any more about W.E.B. Du Bois. It had been such a uh, success uh, that I, I, I didn't want to be typecast. I thought I had said just about all I could say, and others would come to say much more and correct me. And uh, Walter Isaacson had the idea of something called uh, leadership in America, uh, and uh, that was proposed to the Society of American Historians, and we all uh, took a bite of the apple. And, and uh, I disappointed uh, Walter by choosing Wendell Wilkie. Uh, <laughs> but he was good enough not to say anything, although I think it pissed him off royally. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a profile of Wendell Wilkie, and I think it was, it, it was able. Uh, and uh, th- that was that. But then I thought, no, he really is interesting. He really, this was a moment that might have been and what might the moment have been? And so I went back 
uh, to him uh, and to his marvelous archive in Bloomington, Indiana, which is really pretty uh, unexplored, a very large uh, collection. And the more I got into it and the more I interviewed, the more I thought that uh, he could say something. And as I got into it, it took longer because I lost uh, uh, my uh, my spouse along the way and uh, uh, other things uh, uh, <clears throat> impeded the, uh, the, the writing. Uh, and along came the possibility of Donald Trump. And uh, I said, of course, that's not ever going to happen. <laughs> but um, and in fact, and I, I, I wrote a, an op-ed and I sent it to the Times and they said, you're right, uh, we, we, don't, uh, we appreciate your contribution, but no, we'll give this a pass. Um, well, um, so, but um, I thought if something like this that he represents gets traction, it would be a good thing to have the anti-Trump, the businessman who was successful, the businessman who honored the New Deal uh, but wanted to make it work efficiently, uh, the businessman who believed in a kind of uh, 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 enriching uh, um, uh, value in uh, in immigration, uh, and uh, the businessman uh, who also turned his gaze beyond our shores to the world that was coming, uh, and as I say, conceived a new world order. And so that brings us to the book. Did, did your... I, I don't remember the... I remember asking you this, but I don't remember the answer. Um, did your father vote for Wilkie? Uh, y- yes. Um, I hadn't remembered until I got into it, and then I remembered that I, could, I was about four, four years old then, so... Uh, precocious, though, so <laughs> I, I think I uh, there were there were, were de- debates around the table. My father was a Wilkie man, and my mother uh, was for FDR, uh, and uh, I admired them both. And so uh, I thought my mother was smarter than my father, <laughs> uh, but but he was. Uh, um, a terrific figure. And so let's see what that was all about. Uh, So there was that as well. Uh, And then it also uh, occurred to me that he had a friendship uh, with a man who was distantly related to me, uh, Walter White, who had uh, commanded the NAACP for much of its existence and died, of course, just the year after Brown versus Board. And they, Wilkie and Walter White, developed one of the closest friendships of their lives. Uh, they had egos that uh, uh, were complementary. Uh, they uh, both uh, wanted to be wordsmiths. Wilkie, of course, reviewed uh, books in uh, the Herald Tribune uh, and wanted to write a, a major book about American race relations, and Walter did the same thing. Uh, and that that relationship, I thought, uh, was quite significant because it must have represented something that um, that my father saw, and that was the insufficiencies uh, and the hypocrisy of the New Deal when it came to uh, to civil rights. Uh, we know that Eleanor Roosevelt had to represent 
the New Deal at its best when it came to civil rights because Franklin couldn't do anything about it given the seniority uh, nature of the Senate uh, and the uh, monopoly on legislation that the uh, obscene White South had. But Wilkie... Uh, promised a, an end run around these things. And so uh, the, how shall I put it, the talented 10th, I wrote about in Du Bois, but much larger in the 40s, uh, successful African-Americans of uh, professional standing looked with admiration uh, and suspicion too upon uh, Wilkie, and the newspapers of the group, except for the Chicago Defender, endorsed Wendell Wilkie. And so I thought Wilkie was just on the cusp of doing something demographic that would be fascinating. And so that 1936 conversion of all African Americans to the New Deal uh, could have been that 70%, have uh, been somewhat eaten into with interesting results. Uh, And so that, again, uh, was why uh, I thought he was interesting and and devote a chapter in the book called uh, uh, American Exceptionalism at Work, this friendship between Walter White and the NAACP and the African-American leadership class and Wendell Wilkie. The man is is an extra... Wilkie is... And I don't know how much any of you knew about Wilkie. I didn't know very much. All I knew was that in 1940, Joe Kennedy is the ambassador to Great Britain and just doing a disastrous job. Um, He's a nightmare of an ambassador. He tries to, he's going to solve all the problems of the world by getting together with Hitler and they'll reach an agreement and he'll buy out Hitler and Hitler will let the Jews go, leave Germany. Everything goes wrong. Um, And Roosevelt doesn't know what to do with him until Sumner Wells comes to Roosevelt and he says, you better get him home. You better get him home because the longer he stays over there, the further he's going to get from the Democratic Party, and we can't afford for him to support Wilkie. Um, If he supports Wilkie and brings the Irish Catholic vote to Wilkie, you know, we're done. And yes, because uh, uh, in that uh, same time frame, uh, who endorses Wilkie but John L. Lewis, the head of CIO? What's going on? And so with labor, maybe... And certainly with the Catholic vote, yes, with, uh, with uh, your man, uh, the, the, the game may be up. It's going to be a close election uh, until the last moment. All the polling, Gallup poll was only about, what, three years old by this time, and the Rover had been around. And except for the bookies who knew what was going to happen, <laughs> everybody said, this is too close to coal. Uh, and so, uh, yes, so Sumner Wells was, was right. However, um, your book uh, uh, is a treasure for me from uh, the, the point of appreciating the, the Wilkie, uh, dynam- the, uh, the Kennedy dynamic uh, for various reasons. You've spelled out his uh, unhappiness uh, representing us at uh, the Court of St. James's. Um, but... Um, 
There was also uh, that the Looses had, or one Loose had a uh, special uh, relationship with, uh, uh, with Joseph Kennedy. Uh, there were trysts in Paris and what have you. In fact, just as the Germans were coming into Paris, they were together. And uh, uh, he goes back to St. James's. And he says, and when I come, when I go home, I'm going to get off the plane and I'm going to endorse Wilkie and bring the Catholic vote. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. She tells Wilkie that. And uh, though Wilkie is, of course, for the Allies uh, completely, although it isn't so clear because he can't say that since he is the head of the, the isolationist Republican Party. But we know from the secret uh, <clears throat> correspondence that uh, Lord Lothian, the British ambassador to the United States, sent to Churchill, uh, it doesn't matter who wins. Uh, if Wilkie wins, he's going to be for us, and of course FDR will have our back. Uh, but Wilkie could only say that in, uh, in, 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 uh, covertly. Uh, so there's a kind of uh, paradox here that he would want uh, the man who represents uh, the isolationist point of view uh, in its most perhaps unpleasant uh, dimension. It's anti-Semitism, uh, it's uh, religious bigotry, uh, and so on. But that was the expectation. And so on October 27, 1940, uh, uh, when uh, the Boeing Clipper uh, they uh, landed uh, in uh, Idlewild. Uh, the Looses were there to welcome uh, our ambassador, and the press uh, expected something to be said. Nothing was said. Kennedy, the Kennedys retreated, and then later uh, they returned and flew to uh, Washington for dinner with FD, the, uh, the, the president. And we know from... Uh, Bob Caro's uh, wonderful moment there when Lyndon Johnson happened to be uh, in the Oval Office as Roosevelt is talking to Joe Kennedy. And when he hangs up, he puts his finger across his throat. And uh, we don't know exactly what the deal was, perhaps MI5 documents that showed that our ambassador was really just about to commit treason, or uh, was it a promise of his being a presidential timber or his son Joe. In any case, it doesn't. It does not happen. But uh, that uh, uh, that was a moment that uh, was uh, a uh, driving a stake. It's an extraordinary. And Rose, you know, there's there's a a battle here between Rose, the wife, and Claire, the the lover, Claire Booth Luce, sends him a telegram, Joe, a telegram in Lisbon, because the only way to get out of Europe then was to fly from Lisbon, and says, can't wait to see you, I'll be at the airport. Rose, meanwhile, knows that the only way, that the way to get to her husband is to say, you're going to destroy the political careers of your sons, because the only place for an Irish Catholic is the Democratic Party. And if you support Wilkie, that's it. For Joe, they weren't worried about Jack. Joe Jr. would never be, you know, would never be president. Um, 
So they, they flew back, and they're so, the White House is so frightened that they send emissaries to meet him at the plane. They whisk him off, send him right to Washington. Roosevelt wines and dines him as if he's his best friend. Um, Joe says, let me think about it, and then gives a speech. And it's a great speech, yeah. of course. Uh, and it's the, the, that's the Boston address the day before Roosevelt's address, and that, uh, uh, that cinches the, uh, the election, of course. Yes. But do you think if, if, if Wilkie had spoken more forthrightly about his support for the Allies, he would have come closer in the end? Do you think part of the the reason why Roosevelt wins is that Roosevelt is seen as more of a leader in the war to come, and that there will be a war to come? I, yes, I, I think that's that's the case. And in fact, really, this is an unhappy moment in Wilkie's uh, career because uh, Roosevelt refused to be, to debate uh, Wilkie. He was busy being president. And uh, Wilkie had to create a straw man, and uh, he finally decided that he would charge the president uh, with perfidy because everything that he said was a lie. He was, in fact, going to bring the country into war. And he he iterated that over and again. And in the last three weeks, uh, the polling for Wilkie closed with Roosevelt, and that brought Roosevelt out of the White House Uh, where he said, I'll make five speeches. Eleanor had said to him, if you don't get out of the White House, this man is going to uh, defeat defeat you. And, of course, uh, those speeches were quite good, uh, and uh, so they were uh, effective. Um, Had Wilkie won, though, by saying that, Roosevelt, by April, your boys will be in the fields of Flanders, which is what he did say at the very end, had that given him the election, he would, though, have betrayed the people who voted for him for that reason. Uh, Because Wilkie's commitment to the Wilsonian dream uh, was an addiction. He believed that this country was responsible for the uh, chaos uh, 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 afflicting uh, the, tw- the, the 30s by turning its back on the League uh, and the Versailles Treaty. And that that must never happen again. And, and if we go to war the next time, we must know what the end game is. And so he would have uh, placated the Tafts uh, and the Vandenbergs uh, and uh, the... Um, uh, the, 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 the ones whose names are not so familiar any longer. And Dewey, of course, was uh, uh, so uh, much of, a, um, of, of an indecisive uh, politician that he was less concerned about him. Uh, so um, I asked uh, uh, Wendell Wilkie II uh, about uh, uh, his uh, grandfather's uh, 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 betraying his own beliefs that uh, we must fight uh, uh, and save the the, uh, the the allies, and he said, "Well, you know, uh, if he could have won, he would have done it." Yeah. <laughs> so there yeah. you are. Politics at the end of the day is politics. The the, the wonderful, I mean the 
the last act in which Wilkie goes to Europe as an emissary, as an ally of the president who's just defeated him, is it's an extraordinary story of of courage and integrity, I think. It is. He, he makes a, a speech on um, Armistice Day. He's defeated, and the first thing he does uh, is make a speech on uh, the, the three radio networks. It's the loyal opposition speech in which he says that the role of the party is to keep the other party honest uh, by loyally supporting the best uh, for the uh, for the, the Commonwealth, the Republic. That's a brilliant speech, and it got more telegrams than any other uh, uh, speech uh, to to date. Um, yes, they, the the going to to Britain uh, was indispensable. We we have to remember that no American politician uh, politician, not an ambassador, had ever left the country. Uh, Senator Borah, who had been chair of the Foreign Relations Committee when he was. Uh, when the Republicans were in and was uh, a mighty force for foreign affairs uh, after, after 33, um, had never had a passport. Uh, and so uh, here is uh, a man who, uh, with the uh, uh, advice of uh, Frank Futter uh, and uh, Harold Ginsburg of the uh, Viking uh, uh, press and people from the Herald Tribune and the indispensable Irita Van Doren, uh, Wilkie's by that time mistress, telling him, look, you go, uh, you see what's happening under the Blitz and you come back and then you can be a credible voice when it comes to Lend-Lease. And uh, that is what he does do and it is effective because the competition was close uh, Joe Kennedy is back now, and he's testifying before the Foreign Affairs Committee that it'll be a mistake to give the Brits anything. And, of course, there is the, uh, the Icarus of the time, uh, Lindbergh, uh, uh, wonderfully, eloquently defending isolationism and uh, the Germans. And it's his Wilkie who comes back, called back, uh, <clears throat> and uh, who testifies it was the most heavily attended uh, such uh, presentation to date on Capitol Hill. And although the Republicans didn't vote for uh, Lend-Lease, um, uh, the public appreciated Wilkie and uh, the Republican Party got the, uh, much of the credit uh, for, uh, for Lend-Lease. At the same time, he makes it certain that he's not going to be nominated in '44. He doesn't know that, though. He doesn't does know he? that, right? <laughs> does he want? He wants to try again. Well, yes, he does. And of course, finally, when he declares officially, it's February second, nineteen forty-four. Uh, he throws his hat in the ring. Uh, his polling, of course, was uh, there were two. Po- there were two um, admired uh, figures uh, in the country: FDR and Wendell Wilkie. And it was just assumed that Wendell Wilkie in forty-four would be the presidential candidate for his party. And very likely, the betting money was, Wendell Wilkie will, of course, replace uh, whomever is running if, if Roosevelt does a fourth time. Um, uh, and that was um, objectively a realistic um, uh, prognosis. Um, the, 
circumnavigation of the, of the globe, of course, is important because he brings back that experience of uh, meeting with the aureole of leaders of the globe and local leaders, uh, Stalin and de Gaulle and the Shah of Iran and Chiang Kai-shek and Mrs. Chiang Kai-shek and uh, 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 the, the whole <coughs> um, panoply of, uh, of leaders, and comes back and uh, addresses the country, uh, um, um, what was it called, a speech to the nation, uh, in which he introduced Americans to what, uh, to what the Atlantic Charter really must mean, what those freedoms would have to mean, what the expectation was. This time, the end game must be, in fact, a world order of responsible co- uh, co- uh, collaboration. Uh, and uh, the book that uh, will follow, which is, of course, the most uh, heavily sold book in American history, uh, for its time, one million copies within two weeks, that had never happened, and on and on it went. One World had such an impact. Mind you, it was ephemeral, as books are in their impact, uh, but it uh, introduced uh, the nation to the, Atlant- to the uh, 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 United Nations coming, and it introduced uh, the country to its responsibility uh, and the end of American innocence and the beginning of American responsibility globally. And yet, he doesn't even come close to winning the nomination in '44, does he? Well, the opposition uh, has regained its, uh, it, its, uh, uh, its traction. Uh, and the opposition uh, was the, the, the old guard, Republican, the DuPonts, uh, the Joe Pugh, uh, Keeney, uh, the, the the bourbons of the party who forgot nothing and learned nothing, and uh, they uh, they bankrolled his destruction. Uh, it's a Machiavellian story. It's safe to say that uh, Alf Landon's uh, <clears throat> campaign manager, the head of the uh, Republic, the the, the uh, RNC chair of, of 1936, was a man named John D. M. Hamilton. Uh, august, impressive, uh, aristocratic, uh, and he ruined uh, Alf Landon's chances, uh, uh, what chances there were, in 1936. And so in 1940, when Wilkie does get the nomination, the first thing he does is send Hamilton packing. Uh, Hamilton, however, was uh, a master of... Uh, of political organization. The uh, DuPonts had bankrolled a year for him uh, in London studying the Tory party's return to power. It's interesting, the correspondence between the DuPonts and uh, and Hamilton. He comes back and uh, he really shapes up the party organizationally, uh, but uh, he is uh, suspect uh, of not being at all progressive. He's He's dismissed by by Wilkie. Uh, He's uh, taken on by Joe Pugh, and he's sent across the country uh, gradually with his Rolodex, meeting uh, the county chairs and uh, the elected officials and the bank bank ventures, uh, saying, Wilkie is not our man. Wilkie is... uh, uh, We can't do a, uh, a new deal with the new deal. And uh, it was quite efficacious. Particularly, it was because 
Wilkie, uh, through uh, Joe Martin, uh, did have control of the Republican Party. Uh, Martin was both the um, minority speaker and the uh, head of the RNC. Um, but finally, uh, 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 he was uh, his man was out outmaneuvered. Martin uh, stepped down, uh, and uh, the people who were in the <coughs> pockets of the cons- conservatives uh, began uh, running the uh, administration of the party, and there are all sorts of meetings at Mackinac Island and elsewhere. Uh, where uh, the program for the party becomes uh, unequivocally internationalist, uh, Taft uh, uh, despairing that it's the end of the party, but at the same time uh, there's a backlash and they revisit the internationalist aspect of the party and they qualify it and all that back and forth. And Earl Warren, who Wilkie thought was in his pocket, uh, betrayed uh, Wilkie, uh, because he uh, read the tea leaves and, and the correspondence between Joe Pugh and Hamilton and, and Warren is quite interesting. And this surprised Wilkie, who's still naive. He was a businessman, after all, didn't begin his life as a politician. Uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, Warren, uh, decides to run as favorite son, and that gives the California delegation uh, to him with a promise that 50% of the delegates may be for Wilkie. It forces Wilkie to run for the only primary available, Wisconsin, and he is uh, humili- humiliated, yeah. uh, and uh, that's it. The, you know, the historians, we don't like to do counterfactual history. Think of what might have happened if the South had won the Civil War or any number of other things. But but when I look at this, you know, read the book again and think of what might have happened, not in 40, but in 44, if Wilkie, instead of Dewey, had run against Roosevelt and been elected in 44. Um, I sat here about two years ago with Joe Lellyveld, who had just written a book about the last hundred days of... Franklin Roosevelt's life. And it was clear in 44 that Roosevelt was not up to, his heart wasn't working. He could work maybe two hours a day. Uh, and his vice president, Harry Truman, knew nothing. He was, you know, kept in, I don't know what he did as vice president. Ah, yes. So that brings us to counterfactuals, my goodness gracious. It's the last act, and it is that though uh, ousted by his own party, uh, with an invitation to the convention just as an honorary uh, guest, but nothing else, um, what happens is that uh, um, <clears throat> Roosevelt sends uh, Harold Ickes to uh, see uh, Wilkie, and they meet at the, uh, uh, at the St. Regis, and uh, Ickes says, FDR wants you to be his vice president. Uh, Wallace, we're throwing out Wallace, you know, uh, and... Uh, um, God knows we don't want Truman. Um, so, <laughs> uh, and Wilkie says, I'll think about it. Uh, but uh, uh, he uh, uh, abandons the, uh, the, the offer. But FDR isn't finished. So then he sends Sam Rosenman, his speechwriter, uh, and says, well, look here, 
I understand that you're thinking of creating a third party, Wendell. I would love this because my problem has been the South. If we could have a liberal party of the best of them, why, I would love this. And so they seal a deal. And it is understood that Roosevelt is to say nothing until after the Democratic Convention. And then they are going to conspire to do something. Now, of course, Roosevelt is dead. Uh, uh, McCarthy said he has six months to go. Uh, but uh, that doesn't affect the uh, the um, future gaze of, of FDR. Uh, and uh, that is indeed what excites Wilkie, uh, but it doesn't come to pass. That's, you can read the book to, to see why that, that's the case. Uh, but uh, Roosevelt still believes that Wilkie's role will be either to be the proconsul of the uh, of defeated Germany to administer Nazi Germany or to be present at the United Nations. He and Churchill are talking about how important it must be for uh, for Wilkie to handle the peace, and Wilkie drops dead. The, the, you know, these are just some of the stories in the improbable Wendell Wilkie. Um, we forget. You know, one of the things historians have to do to write good history is to not write a narrative in which it is inevitable that A will lead to B, will lead to C, will lead to D. What we have to do is examine the possibilities that things might have been different um, in order to understand better what really happened rather than what might have happened. You know, it's called revisionism, and it's our, it's our grub, grub steak, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I commend the book. Now, let's see. Um, I knew this question was coming. Oh. It's right on top here. Are there any contemporary politicians <laughs> such as Mitt Romney that could be considered modern-day Wilkies? Uh, I think it's too early uh, to know with uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, He had the opportunity just a few uh, television appearances ago, didn't he? Uh, And there was a waffle. Uh, But one thinks that perhaps he might qualify. Um, One one thinks... Um, and I doubt that Mr. Flake uh, can redeem himself. It was a, a tentatively uh, interesting uh, 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 operation with uh, the, the Kavanaugh business, but um, uh, I, I, think, uh, I think not. Um, but there will be someone. Uh, uh, we have 23 Democrats running, uh, and we have some very interesting women um, so let's just wait and see. Uh, by the time Mueller is forced to appear, uh, things will be a little, I think, clearer where we're going. Do you think Wilkie would have won if there had been television? Well, of course, 1940 was the first televised uh, political convention, the Republican right. convention. Um, and I'm trying to remember who it was who... Um, who was the voice for it? Is the man who discovered uh, 
Lawrence of Arabia. Um, uh, who? Yes, right. Lowell Thomas, right. Um, so the question was... Would he have won if he had, tele- if he had television, if he was... Um, he was terrifically impressive. I myself had not seen much uh, uh, of him until um, I, I appeared on the C-SPAN thing with, uh, with uh, Brian Lamb, and he ran some of the, uh, the campaigning footage... And he was just overwhelming. It was a, uh, a force there and a smarts there uh, and, uh, and um, an apparent principledness that uh, was much appealing. You know. um, what about if there had been a debate? Well, between FDR yeah. and... And Wilkie, he very much wanted that, of course. Um, I don't know, but I think FDR might have uh, mastered Wilkie, uh, I, I, I think, because um, with all of what, uh, uh, FDR's deviousness, he was, in fact, a, a grand uh, man. Uh, he did have a vision, and... I think Wilkie is in many ways um, a, a kind of uh, uh, FDR Mulcahy. Yeah. He, he didn't... He wasn't physically impressive, though, was he? Yes, he was. He was? Yes, he was about 6'2". Six, uh, six oh, I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Um, he didn't exercise. and uh, He had a big belly. Uh, he, he, he did, but... Um, <laughs> um, uh, he he was an immensely appealing to to, to women, um, and the descriptions of of him indicate that he had a kind of magic or something that uh, was enormously appealing. Uh. <laughs> Did um, th- there's still something magical about him winning the nomination? Um, there are a bunch of questions here about. How did, I mean, how did that happen? I um, uh, don't think that I offer too much that's really new, uh, perhaps more glandular, because I have the benefit of five days in Philadelphia, um, um, and I'm having a senior moment. The the author of that, I think you all know the name I'm reaching for, which is just wonderful. It it, it, uh, has the whole... Uh, scenario. We know a little bit more than he could have known uh, about Joe Pugh. Um, but uh, also, of course, there are two ways of looking at it. David Halberstam long ago said that uh, Wilkie was invented by uh, Time Life yeah. and Look Magazine uh, and, uh, and uh, Thomas Lamont of J.P. Morgan. Um, and that is true, um, except that um, Wilkie can't be uh, micromanaged or he doesn't ventriloquize these people. But the, uh, the, the heft of the Eastern establishment, it's in its glory with the uh, production of Wendell Wilkie. It's admirable in terms of its effectiveness. Um, for example, uh, we forget that for Republicans, Hoover still had great standing yeah. And in the 40 election, 
he rehearsed his uh, speech, and when he was called upon, uh, uh, floodlights uh, uh, hit upon him, and he walked from the end of the convention down the hall to the podium, and people who knew him said, this is going to be a speech of the ages. It's William Jennings Bryan, Republican. Uh, He's worked on it. And uh, the uh, hall was silent, and he began speaking. And then it became restive, and then people began talking, and then and they said, oh, he's finished. Well, uh, Sam Pryor, uh, a Wilkie uh, ally, had the keys to the, uh, key, uh, the convention in his pocket because the Taft man had had a heart attack the week before. And so Sam Pryor of, of Connecticut and a uh, Pan Am vice president uh, uh, fully behind Wilkie, turned off the microphone, and so Hoover was never heard. There was an investigation later, and it was proven that <laughs> that happened. And uh, then you, you, you had, of course... That, the, that helped a little bit. <laughs> <That helped. laughs> then you had the balcony, and you had uh, Oren Root, Elihu Root's grandson, uh, uh, who's 28, out of Princeton, and working for a white shoe law firm. Uh, and he reads one of the great statements of uh, Wilkie. It's um, uh, it, uh, uh, a plan for America. And it's, it, it has all the whistles and bangs you, you would expect that it, uh, ran in uh, Fortune magazine, and he's just read it, and he sits down and he writes a manifesto which he sends to all the graduates of the Ivy Leagues uh, with the request that they duplicate 15 of them and, uh, and, and, and send them back. And so uh, in no time at all, uh, there are something like 200,000 um, elite types, uh, hardly uh, numerically significant, but the Oren Roots Boys, or the Wilkie Clubs, of course, uh, occupy the balconies uh, of the convention. Uh, and so in a 10 to 1 ratio, one Taft man, nine Wilkie people, the thundering uh, balconies shout down everybody except uh, Wilkie. And uh, Gore Vidal has left a, uh, a, a memory of that. He was just 15 years old. And he said, it's the first time in American history that you looked at and that the convention was ruled by its balcony. Uh, and they were quite uh, effective in, uh, in the atmospherics and optics of, of uh, the, the Wilkie development. Very interesting question. Um, do you think Wilkie would have lobbied against the State Department to let in more Jewish refugees if he had been elected? Absolutely. Uh, his um, time in Palestine was brief, um, and he wrote about it in a kind of, this is going to be a difficult problem way. Um, but um, in uh, one world... Uh, the last but one chapter, he talks about uh, the presence of Jews in Palestine and the success uh, of uh, turning that uh, land into something very viable. Uh, and there's a good reason to think that he would have done, he would have uh, opposed the State Department because his campaign manager in the West was Bartley Crumb. 
And Bartley Crum it was who would be part of the Anglo-American Commission to Palestine. And he will write a book called Behind the Silken Curtain, which is a marvelous endorsement of Jewish presence in Palestine. Uh, So I think uh, Wilkie would have done so. Did did Wilkie interact? That you have a photo in here of him with Stalin. Mm-hmm. Um, did did he also interact with Churchill? Um, they uh, liked each other. Churchill says some interesting things about about him in one of his uh, appreciations. Um, the the problem was, of course, that Churchill. One of his most famous statements uh, was uh, in response to Wilkie. Uh, when he said that he had not become His Majesty's uh, first minister to preside over uh, the destruction and dismounting of of the British Empire. And that was uh, said in Parliament in response to Wilkie's uh, statement about Egypt and about India uh, and about the British Empire. But the sooner it's gone, the better, he was saying. Of course, Roosevelt had the same point of view. But didn't say it. But didn't say it, no. <laughs> um, what about Stalin? What goes, it's a wonderful uh, photograph. I mean, Stalin is in his, in his military uniform, and Wilkie is there with his big belly hanging out in sort of a, <laughs> you know, a, it's a benign a, smile. Uh, it, it is really an interesting, uh, the, the optics of that, that photo. Um, well, uh, he debates uh, Stalin about uh, capitalism. He tells him uh, that there's lots to be said about it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, when he gets to China, he tells Chiang Kai-shek that uh, he could profit from uh, the, uh, the productions of scale that the Soviets have mastered, which is curious. Um, Someone who says there have been several biographies written about Wendell Wilkie. Were, were there other there, successful biographies uh, or biographies? Uh, th- th- there is a very good one by Steve Neal, uh, right. done, tw- done in the 1980s, I think, uh, and very good. Uh, but once again, uh, documents come available right. after a time, and I had that advantage, I think. Uh, the first one is written by a friend of John D. M. Hamilton's, a Republican woman, uh, and it's uh, not very kind to to Wilkie, but it's useful. And then there's a massive one, uh, Wendell Wilkie, Leader of Freedom or something. It's about 600 pages, uh, and there its problem is that once again he needed documents that he couldn't have uh, to explain, for example, why. Finally, after some six years of tumultuous uh, litigation over the TVA, um, FDR threw in the towel and gave Wilkie uh, the equivalent of $1.3 billion to buy uh, Commonwealth and Southern okay. is utilities. Now, we concern. haven't even talked about that, but right. it's another reason to get the book. And, the, the TVA story is and we, just we, extraordinary. We couldn't know that, but... Uh, one morning, uh, the Supreme Court had two cases, uh, Alabama versus Ickes, and of course with the new Supreme Court, the Roosevelt Supreme Court, uh, it was a decision uh, pro-TVA. And then the second one was coming, and that was Tennessee Valley uh, Power uh, Company 
and, uh, and uh, TVA. And before that comes, Wilkie gets a phone call. He knows he's going to lose. Uh, he gets a phone call from uh, a Chattanooga businessman who says, I have a message for you from, uh, uh, from the president. You had said you just want a fair arbitration. You, uh, 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 he, you would accept that. And Wilkie says, yes, I will. Uh, so he says, uh, all right, I'll get back to you. And he comes back and he says, the president is very happy to hear you say that, that you'll take a, an arbiter, right? Yes, uh, he will be the arbiter. <laughs> uh, and Wilkie says, that's no deal. He says, oh, no. So, uh, if it doesn't drop below uh, a billion, seven, $78.6 million, it's a deal. And nobody knew this, of course. And then the Supreme Court ruled, and uh, TVA takes over uh, the Commonwealth and Southern. They go on the federal payroll. So the whole debate was absolutely unnecessary. From 1933 to 1939, it was not necessary to have it, except that the New Deal ideologues... Uh, uh, Cohen and and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, oh dear me, um, uh, Cochran, um, uh, Tommy the, Cochran, the Cochran and, Tommy the Cochran, and, and, and those guys, uh, plus the southern the, the the southern senators, the southwestern senators, uh, especially um, especially uh, Morris. Um, uh, Norris, rather, Norris. Um, uh, were adamant that uh, the, the the utilities corporations had had got to be fixed. They were just the spawn of, of Wall Street. And Roosevelt, depending on who he was with, agreed. And then the next group agreed. And so it just went on and on. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.